Seriously Balkans, the Biapod Talks. Your in-depth analysis and discussion of current events in the Western Balkans. So welcome to Seriously Balkans, the Balkans and Europe Policy Advisory Group's uh, regular podcast. The hosts today are myself, Florian Bieber and Tena Prelitz. Today we will talk about the recent unrest in northern Kosovo from the perspective of the Kosovo Serb community who lives in that area. And we will also introduce our policy brief that marks the 20th anniversary of the signing of the Thessaloniki Declaration, asking what next for EU enlargement. Seriously Balkans, the Biapod Talks. Air raid sirens went off as we recorded our latest segment for Seriously Balkans. These were air raid sirens in Mitrovica, highlighting the continued volatility and challenges facing the north of Kosovo after recent unrest, which saw dozens of K-4 soldiers injured. The violence underscored the difficult relations between Serbia and Kosovo, and this has been the main focus of international media attention. In our segment today, we're focusing on the position of Kosovo Serbs, who often feel squeezed between Belgrade and Pristina. Talking to us are Marina Volovic, a research associate at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs in Berlin, SVP, herself from Kosovo, as well as Milica Andrić-Rakic, a project manager at the New Social Initiative with past experience as a journalist. Milica, I would first go to you. Can you tell us a little bit what the atmosphere in the North has been since uh, the unrest of recent weeks? Well, in general, I could actually say that it has been cheerful, but that is just due to the fact that we've had the end of school year. So we have celebrations of, of school children almost every day, sometimes twice a day on the streets. There were a lot of different performances at the protest. So in, in that respect, some sort of energy came back to the community with the summertime and all of these um, other activities. But in general... For months now, it has been very tense. People feel that big changes are ahead, not necessarily positive ones. So there is a lot of uh, concern about the future. There is a lot of disappointment with the political representatives and in general fear of Kosovo government and possible actions against citizens. So it's really quite complex situation with uh, abundance of, of very different sometimes confronting emotions. And I mean, this is, brings me to, to, to kind of the next question. Um, maybe Marina, you want to first chip in on that one. And I mean, because in the aftermath of the unrest, um, Prime Minister Kurti kept talking about a fascist militia being responsible for the unrest um, and kind of shifting the blame that this was very much orchestrated by Belgrade. So how do you assess the role of, you know, homegrown dissatisfaction versus, you know, organized groups which were responsible for the violence? Yeah, I mean, organized groups have been present in the north, um, at least since the end of the Kosovo War, because of the rule of law and security vacuum that the withdrawal of uh, Serb security forces is left behind. Um, and these are usually the groups that, you know, still today coordinate their moves with the political regime in Serbia. So they are likely to exert political pressure by means of uh, force and violence. And this is something we've uh, also seen in the past. However, uh, this should not draw away from the fact that the majority of protesters are regular people uh, who are not prone to violence and are simply dissatisfied 
satisfied with the uh, unilateral moves of Pristina and with uh, you know increasing confrontational politics ever since the summer of 2022. Um, so even though you know specific parts of the community use violence, uh, this does not mean that uh, you know Kurdish measures are wholeheartedly supported in the north. In fact, um, the increased sense of tension and control is getting to people. Um, as well as Kurdi's, you know, blanket statements about the North being full of criminals and fascist militia, as you've already said. So the violence could have been anticipated, I think, and Kurdi deliberately added fuel to the fire instead of working towards restoring a fragile peace in the North. Is this also your take, Milica, in terms of how you see this distinction between, you know, citizens who did, you know, have concerns and went out versus organized, you know, groups which which do use violence? Absolutely. Any In any given area, you will find people who resort to violence rather than protest. But um, as Barina said, it's not just that it's not fair to not make distinction between genuine frustration of the community that is expressing their dissatisfaction peacefully and which is a large majority of the community uh, and these other groups but it's also very very dangerous and it's what it's what has been happening for quite some while now actually uh, this dismissal of the genuine uh, Kosovo sub-community frustrations with the Kosovo government and is one of the things that is actually making crisis management impossible to, to divert because for the last two years, all communication channels between Kosovo sub-community and the Kosovo government, international community, have been severed. Uh, we've had 10 years of dialogue that was focusing on the integration of Kosovo sub-community and, and the conditions in which we live in. And uh, in the past two years, this has changed through, through this approach that no internal issues of Kosovo will be discussed uh, in the dialogue. And again, internal issues of Kosovo were actually the, the situation and, and grievances of Kosovo sub-community. So we had full extraction of Kosovo sub-community and those interests of that community out of the dialogue. In parallel to that, what we also seen happening is Kosovo government snapping all ties with Kosovo sub-political representatives, at least those who have either a large constituency already or that we know have significant mobilizing power uh, in the community. So that line as well was cut and then there was no there were no attempts to open again these communication channels until Kosovo Serb community left institutions, which point the international community started engaging civil society a bit more. But to be very honest, I, I think that that came uh, too late. The frustrations are, are just too high in the situation that we are in with K4 between uh, the police and the citizens is very difficult to get out of from, especially through a political agreement, which is now currently the goal of the international community. So I'm very, very disheartened. And I do feel that this uh, violence that it uh, incur is used as uh, another way to dismiss the concerns, again, which brought to all of this uh, frustration uh, fueling. The situation is kind of reversing to 2013. And it's looking like if nothing majorly changes in terms of taking into account the, the frustration of the community, we were just going to re repeat the 2013 cycle again with one dominant political party that is allowed to uh, suppress democratic will of the Kosovo sub-community, and we will just go back to our old ways. This brings me to a question, I mean, maybe to you, Marina, because during the protests, also candidates from Subskalista were booed at by demonstrators, which 
raises questions about how, how much Subskalista, which has been dominant, uh, as you pointed out, um, Milica, um, for a decade, um, how much this group is still in charge of politics in Kosovo, um, and with it, of course, also the direct control or the influence of the government of Serbia. Yeah, uh, I would just like to uh, just briefly react to something that Milica said uh, previously, and then I'll answer this question. Uh, namely, um, Kurti, when he, you know, uh, was campaigning for um, the election back when he won it, he stated that he wanted to initiate a dialogue with the Kosovo Serbs instead of with Serbia. And I think that, you know, the Kosovo government has largely failed to do that. Um, so just like a brief reminder of that, uh, that kind of hasn't really materialized um, since Kurti gained power. But to your question whether, you know, Srpskalista um, still has control in the north, um, you know, the fact that the Srpskalista was in Belgrade to support Vucic on his own counter-protest when, you know, Kosovo took over the municipal building, I think illustrates the power that the Srpskalista has. Um, it has always been an extended arm of Belgrade and Kosovo, and I would even question whether they had any control of, the air, uh, of their own in the first place, uh, because all moves of the Srpskalista are coordinated with Belgrade and closely. Um, you know, according to most recent polls from late 2022, only 8% of Kosovo Serbs trust the Srpskalista, so that speaks volumes of their position in society. Um, the Serbs, I would say, tend to trust the Serbian state and Serbia state institutions more than their local political representatives. And this goes back to what Milica said, namely that, you know, there has been this tradition of coercion and control that has been exerted by the Srpskalista via, you know, influence of Belgrade. So that, of course, course, uh, you know, shatters trust in a community. However, I would also say that the situation is also complicated, you know, because the Serbs, especially in the north, are economically dependent on Belgrade, which uh, also influences their voting patterns in support of the Srpskalista. So I would say that as long as Belgrade is exerting this type of control over the political life and representation of Serbs in the north, that Serbs will lean towards what Belgrade says. You mentioned already the issue of uh, how Srpskalista members were mobilized in joining the counter protests organized by President Vucic. And so this brings me to the question for you, Milica, about how the, the mass protest against violence in Belgrade viewed in the north. Uh, is this something which is, you know, resonates locally as well? Or is this something which is seen as a kind of a distant uh, protest without direct repercussions? Yeah, well, it is something that raises concerns. If uh, children in Serbia are growing up in a very violence-infused um, atmosphere, you can imagine that it's even worse. Uh, here, where children are basically daily going through a very different uh, amounts of, of, of stress. I mean, I can give my example uh, where on Friday I, I had to pull my daughter from kindergarten under air raid sirens. That is not something that is normal and that is conducive to, to normal childhood. So obviously there is that type of concern, which is your general national concern about the conditions in which children are uh, growing up with. But it's uh, the protests themselves are not uh, that much of a topic. Obviously, there is a, a bigger local concern uh, here with the, all of the attention being limited to what happens uh, here. And if the security situation remains unchanged, which is stable for, uh, for this uh, short moment, but we do have 
several individuals in the community that cannot they they identify as political activists, but they they don't have political structure. Uh, but they uh, are prominent in in supporting opposition protests or any any other activities uh, in Serbia. So there is some attention to it, but not not large uh, not large attention. Kosovo Serbs be, feel or are angry with Belgrade because they feel Belgrade is not doing enough to support them. From their standpoint, Belgrade is selling their interest, the Kosovo community interest, uh, for the sake of Belgrade, either EU integration or um, uh, showing a westward kind of intentions of, of Serbia, but not really caring about Kosovo sub-communities because, uh, community interests, because Kosovo sub-community interests are quite more, let's say, uh, demanding than what Belgrade is uh, uh, allowing to happen in, in 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 the dialogue. So they, I feel that there is this misconception that if Kosovo Serbs represented themselves in the dialogue, uh, we, uh, I'm sorry, there are raid sirens just now going off in Mitrovica. If you were to ask Kosovo Serb community if they wanted to participate in Kosovo uh, society and legal framework, they would probably or most likely tell you, no, this is not what we believe is in our best interest. And in the past 10 years, the participation in Kosovo system has shown or proved that it is so. Milica, you mentioned the, the fact that actually many Serbs in, in, in Kosovo don't feel represented and don't feel actually, actually their issues being negotiated um, by Belgrade as well. And uh, so for Marina, a question would be um, the association of Serb municipalities has been on both sides kind of the main issue on the agenda of the dialogue from the side of Kosovo. This is often seen as a big threat sometimes mentioned as, you know, Republika Srpska or some other threat to territorial integrity, while on the Belgrade side is often positioned as kind of the key, um, the key for for um, the Serb community. How do you see the expectations for that association actually um, playing out for, for Serbs, especially in the north? Mm. Well, I would say that similar to the situation in Serbia, the Serbs in the north are not largely familiar with the contents of the New Deal, nor the specific like nitty gritty provisions of the association community. Um, However, I would also say that there is an overall consensus in the Serb community in the North that the association should guarantee, you know, the highest degree of self-management for the Serbs. Um, and back in the day, we talked about executive powers uh, until the Kosovo Constitutional Court decided that that should not be one of the provisions. So I still think that many people believe that the association will be set up that way to allow for, you know, greater independence from Pristina in the day-to-day -day life. And as Milica has already emphasized, you know, people have generally had this reluctance to integrate into Kosovo state structures in the past 10 years. So for many people, I think this association slash community would be, you know, a, a kind of a middle way between full integration and between, you know, Serbia leaving Kosovo completely. So the initial idea with the association was to integrate the Serb institutions or Serbia-run institutions into the institutions of the association, guaranteeing that people could, you know, keep their jobs. However, uh, you know, uh, over the years, it has become also clear that uh, that has not really been the interest of uh, either side, basically. Yeah, this brings me to, to the last question, uh, really for both of you. I mean, 
EU and the US have invested a lot of political capital in negotiating between Serbia and Kosovo, Belgrade and Pristina um, uh, with multiple agreements. And do you give those agreements, um, the last one signed in Ohrid, um, any future really um, in light of what happened in recent weeks and also of you know the kind of skepticism which has come through both of your um, kind of takes on you know the lack of trust in both uh, the Kosovo institutions as well as in Belgrade in representing uh, the concerns of the community. So maybe start with you, Milica. How do you see? Do you, do you believe that, that these agreements are any basis for a kind of establishing some kind of yeah? normality or some kind of working basis for for functional relations in, in Kosovo, especially for the Serb community? Or do you see, um, yeah, how do you see this process at this particular moment in time? I, I will say that right after our meeting, the media called pretty much to ask how the Kosovo Serb community is feeling. The statements that I've given back then was the Kosovo subcommittee doesn't care about the agreement because it didn't touch upon any of the issues that were relevant for the community at the moment, which was what do they do with their car plates? Uh, will or will there not be elections? And actually, as soon as I saw that one of the outcomes of, of, of the meeting was not ensuring the participation of subscalists in uh, the elections I've I've said to international community representatives, I'm sorry to say this, but you are already back in crisis management. You might not understand that now, but this is what it is. Again, as I said, I do understand that a majority of the Western countries have this principal position uh, that internal issues of Kosovo will not be a subject of the dialogue, that they will not be discussed with Belgrade uh, because it comes from their uh, position of recognizing Kosovo's independence. However, uh, the reality on the ground is negating that. Uh, and by negating it, the international community just keeps losing credibility in the process while at the same same time failing to resolve crisis. Because, for example, let's take the, the license plate. Uh, in April 2022, the international community, after six months of failed negotiations, tells Kosovo, you know, you go ahead, you have the right, this is an internal issue, there are laws prescribing how this is done, go ahead, do it. By doing so, by taking this position and having something that is essentially part of a dialogue, taken away from Serbia, they, uh, let me say this very colloquially, piss off Serbia. And then Kosovo is not able to implement that on the ground without tensions. And then they say to Kosovo, oh, no, 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 back off. Can you postpone? And in doing so, they piss off. Kosovo. So they kind of lose the credibility with both of uh, parties in, in the negotiations in that way. And the same happened with elections. With first saying, go ahead with elections, you, you have every right to do so. It's a constitutional right to please don't send them to municipal buildings. So they keep acting like uh, Kosovo community has no agency and is not important player to be considered or their feelings in this setup. Uh, but the reality keeps, as I said, <laughs> negating that position, and which is why we keep just going from a crisis to crisis, and we still haven't figured out the first one. This all started pretty much with 
license plates in, in September 2021. It's now June 2023. License plates are still not resolved. Whereas we're trying to move to bigger issues like um, uh, solving relations between Kosovo and Serbia and whether or not they will have liaison offices. I'm sorry, but you do not build a house from the roof. Uh, it is a saying in Serbian language. I don't know if it is in, in, in uh, English, but it's quite understood. You cannot just start something from the top and hope to work uh, down to the basis. You first need to remove the crisis points mm. that are uh, on the ground. Marina, do you agree? Is this a house built from the roof? <laughs> yeah, partially. I, I think, you know, one of the major issues uh, with the new agreement is that it never gained emphatic support from Belgrade and Pristina. And this is one of the many reasons why we have a, you know, tense situation in the north. Um, the crises currently in the north uh, prolongates the implementation of the new deal, which I think, you know, offers some tangible benefits to both sides. And I think I would here maybe perhaps slightly disagree with Milica in the sense that, you know, if Serbia recognizes Kosovo's documents. That also ends the dispute on license plates, ID cards, passports, etc. So that would ensure, you know, freedom of movement for Kosovo Serbs as well, which is something that they have been struggling with ever since Kosovo started to unilaterally decide on, you know, uh, banning license plates, fining drivers of license plates issued by Serbia for cities in Kosovo, etc. So, on the other hand, you know, if Kosovo delivers the association, then that also means more autonomy for Serbs in Kosovo and hopefully, you know, greater independence from the political pressures coming from Belgrade. I think that it is currently the only practical solution on the table that would offer some tangible results for both sides and, you know, also greatly improve the rights of the Serbs, both in the north, but also in the rest of Kosovo. But there is currently no political will to implement it. So Vucic will not deliver on recognition of Kosovo and Kosovo will not deliver on the, on the association. I think the most recent crisis has made this abundantly clear. Um, um, I, I kind of want to be positive, but I'm also at the same time realistic. Um, and as long as there is no compromise on Kurti's side to calm down the situation in the north, and I agree uh, with Milica here, you have to start from the north, you have to start from the crises and then build up. Um, you know, the first move of this would be to withdraw the special security forces from the north. Um, then, of course, there's no incentive for Serbia to engage constructively as long as this is not done. Um, and since other benefits are also off the table, like an accelerated EU membership track for both sides, both sides then lack this incentive currently to implement. So I think we have a long road ahead of us, uh, which will greatly depend on internal developments in both countries, you know, whether new governments will be formed by the end of the year, and on also external pressures uh, coming from the West, concretely from the EU and the US. Thanks, Marina. Thanks, Milica, especially to you to also continue the conversation despite the air raid sirens. Uh, and yeah, thanks for you, both of yours, uh, I would say, sober uh, assessment on the issue. Seriously Balkans, the BIPOD talks. The future of the Western Balkans is in the European Union. We first seen these words in writing exactly 20 years ago. On 21st June 2003, the leaders of the EU member states and of the Western Balkan countries signed the Saloniki Declaration at the end of the EU Western Balkan Summit in Greece. 20 years on, however, this future in the European Union has become reality only for Croatia. Six other countries are still waiting in the wings. 
On the other hand, the granting of the status of candidate country for both Ukraine and Moldova in summer 2022 has shaken things up considerably and it seems it's given a renewed momentum to EU enlargement. So has the European dream irrevocably slipped away for the Western Balkan 6 or is there some renewed hope? Our guests today are two BIPAG experts who were actively involved in the EU path of their respective countries back in 2003 and who are ideally placed to tell us how things have changed since then. So a warm welcome to Milica Delevic. Hi, good to be here. And to Nikola Dimitrov. Hi, great to be here. So Nikola, let's start with you. Um, many of our listeners will know that you were the Minister of Foreign Affairs of uh, North Macedonia and you spearheaded the efforts to solve the dispute with Greece uh, through the press agreement in 2018. But I think many might not remember that actually you were also served as the Macedonian ambassador to the United States in the early 2000s when the Thessaloniki agreement was signed, in fact. This, the enthusiasm was really great. I mean, these were hopeful times for the whole continent. The huge, the big enlargement was ongoing, and as we know, it took place one year after, in 2004. So, you know, this was a, the future is open. The European dream was promised to my country, to the whole region of what now we call the Western Balkans. So I probably we were as enthusiastic as the new candidates uh, in the East are these days when it comes to European integration. And fast forward to today, what's the mood in North Macedonia and the whole region? What would you say? was uh, Has this enthusiasm changed so radically? Well, I think now after a few disappointments and a broken promise here and there, I think we are wiser and uh, I think much less optimistic. We got candidacy two years after the Thessaloniki declaration in 2005. So we mark 18 years uh, as a candidate country. And to be honest, I don't know if we are now closer to membership than back in 2005. So, I mean, in some ways our experience is drastic in a sense that we were not back, called back because of European Commission thinking we are not ready to start accession talks. Uh, actually, they have said that repeatedly uh, a number of years, first in 2009. It was the name issue. And when we finally did it with the PRESPA agreement, uh, yesterday actually we marked five years since the signing of the PRESPA agreement. This was not enough in spite of all the promises of virtually all European leaders visiting Skopje, promising to the Macedonian citizens that if they support the PRESPA agreement, the doors towards the European Union will open. So understandably, the dream has faded away and uh, people have lost trust. This was an immense, it was really, the trust was hurt. Credibility of the EU is really down the drain, I think. And it's not only my country, because this sort of resonates uh, throughout the region. So we have a drastic negative turn when it comes to 20 years ago, which is understandable. And I think this is probably a shared responsibility of the region, but also of uh, the European Union itself. And speaking of these uh, grand promises and of unfulfilled dreams, Milica, you are the co-author of a new brief called Keeping the Thessaloniki Promise that will be presented at the European Parliament later this month. So uh, can you tell us, first of all, uh, how do you think that the war in Ukraine has changed things in regard to EU enlargement? 
I think the war in Ukraine changed the situation dramatically because, as Nikola says, while people, citizens across the Western Balkans remain broadly supportive of their country's European integration process, they somehow don't believe that it would happen very soon. And by not believing that it will happen very soon, they don't see the process as driving any positive transformation in their countries. And that, I think, hurts the leverage of the European Union uh, in the Western Balkans quite severely. And this makes it more difficult for the European Union to help resolve any open bilateral issues or to actually support internal transformation in any of these countries. When uh, Russia invaded uh, Ukraine and when the war started, the geopolitical situation changed and I think also once the Ukraine and Moldova applied for uh, European membership, the momentum, the, the situation also changed with regard to the European integration. Somehow the process, we were all reminded, and I think primarily the European Union, why enlargement matters. European Union was essentially a peace project and there is no better use of the enlargement process than in a country like Ukraine, which basically sees enlargement and membership of the European Union as a way to confirm values and uh, as a way to bring peace to their country. So I would think that Ukraine primarily instilled a sense of urgency and new meaning, substance in this process that in the Balkans over the previous 20 years uh, became dormant. But I think it also uh, showed us how to do process in a different way. Because in case of Ukraine, what we saw over the previous year, it's basically two parallel processes. One is the process as we know it, very formal, very rigid, and ultimately very slow, with every member state, be, state being able to block it. So Ukraine applies, the commission sends questionnaire, Ukraine sends back answers, then there is an opinion, then member states decide on the opinion, and very slowly the country moves forward. In parallel, in case of Ukraine, because of the war and because of the need to support the country in a sustainable way, a sort of a parallel process happened with real integration. And this real integration was first invoking temporary protection directive, allowing uh, Ukrainian citizens to move freely within the European Union, then suspending all tariffs and quotas for Ukrainian exports into the European Union, uh, providing macrofinancial assistance for this year of 18 billion euros through borrowing against the headroom or collective borrowing, which we saw uh, in this to this extent only for the uh, post-pandemic fund called the Next Generation European Union, you relying on a European peace facility to help arm Ukraine and only very recently, last week, and therefore that's not going to be in our brief, associating Ukraine with the Connecting Europe facility for infrastructure and energy. So in reality, not because of any design and not because of the wish to give Ukraine um, a fast track, but mostly to be able to support the country against the Russian aggression in a sustainable way, we saw that a very substantial steps towards integrating Ukraine within the EU in certain sectors or in certain steps uh, took place. And therefore, I think Ukraine is important because it changes the geopolitical momentum, instills new sense of urgency and purpose on one hand, and on the other, shows us how we can do this process 
differently and in a more practical and more tangible manner. Thank you. That was a really great description of why EU enlargement matters and of this political momentum that underpins uh, in this moment the whole process. So, uh, Nicola, let me turn to you. This political momentum that Milica was uh, talking about now, how can we reconcile it with the idea that the process should be merit-based? What do you think? Yes, I think we have to seize this momentum. You know, we don't know if this will last for a long time. We know it will; it won't last forever. And this political momentum, in some ways, brings political will back on the table, which is extremely important. I, I don't think that a merit-based process is in contradiction with this uh, new situation. As a matter of fact, I don't think that the process has been merit-based for a while now. Last year. The EU, to some extent, saved the process, mostly inspired by the determination of the Ukrainians, granting them candidate status, also Moldova. And this sort of triggered the first IGCs with Tirana and Skopje and candidacy for Bosnia and Herzegovina and a political decision for visa liberalization for Kosovo. But um, I think we are yet to see a renewed consensus that when these countries are ready, there will be actually a place for them in the EU. So let's think a bit deeper into these policy changes that are needed to revolutionize the process and to really make it work for everybody. Milica, do you think that the EU enlargement process so far has not worked well because the technicalities of it, because the process itself did not work? or rather because the Western Balkan politicians were not up to task and were not reforming. And what can we do about it? What do you think should be the next steps to make it better? I think it was a vicious circle, and I strongly agree with Nicola. What didn't exist before and what clearly exists now, and that's why Ukraine was crucial, is political will and high-level political attention. You know, Western Balkans war, wars ended 20 years ago, uh, there was no sense of urgency and of threat. There were some spikes of trouble in the Western Balkans, but it felt reasonably contained so that it wouldn't threaten the whole continent. And now with Ukraine, you have high level attention and this means political will. So in the absence of political will, what happened is that the EU started behaving as a bureaucrat and started splitting the process and trying to fake steps. If we can't make real steps, then let's split it into three and then let's make one third of a step and therefore you will move a little bit. But this somehow uh, divorced the process from substance so much that citizens couldn't really understand what was happening and the feeling of reward actually was lost. And even if you can't sanction backsliding, if there is no reward, then you have the opportunity cost of backsliding. But this way, you have no significant reward, you have no significant sanction. Therefore, basically, the fact that there was lack of progress was obscured. Now, a lot of people were trying to address this absence of political will through designing, offering to redesign the process. And I think we all know that the process is not ideal and that it could be made better and there are several very good proposals around how to make it better. But I think now that we have political will, 
My argument would be, let's not spend time to reform the process, but let's spend time to capitalize on high-level political attention and on political will, and let's make progress in concrete areas wherever this is possible. This is why Ukrainian example is really relevant. I don't want to say that people in the region, mostly political elites, are not to blame, but this was basically a vicious circle where absence of political will on one side led to absence of reform drive on the other, and somehow met, meant that the civil society and the, you know couldn't really police the process in a way that it was meant to be, because if the European Union says everything is fine, basically okay in the progress report, without clearly stating that something is either wrong or that it will trigger a sanction, it's very difficult to explain to the citizens what's actually happening. So I'd say what we had previously was absence of political will, which uh, then led to absence of reform drive. And the whole, what was happening there was very obscure to citizens. They lost trust in the process. With Ukraine, we have political will, we have high level attention, as Nikola says, let's embrace it. Process can be made better, but I would rather concentrate on making it as tangible as and as pragmatic while the attention is on it. Probably what we should mention is that uh, also one illustration of lack of political will was exemplified through the fact that in DG Near, when the war in Ukraine started, you didn't have a director general. You don't still don't have director for the Western Balkans. You didn't have director for Ukraine and you didn't have director for Turkey. So basically, it was a very strong signal that this was not the priority area. And uh, director general has been recruited only in the previous year. Nicola, what's your take? Should yeah. we revolutionize the process completely or should we make use of this political will that is now present to tweak it and to uh, improve it further? Uh, do you agree with Milica? I agree to a large extent. I think this was the key in missing ingredient in many ways on, on both sides, the candidates and uh, the member states. So I think having political will in it on its own solved many of the problems of the process. I think we may hope, and under the current methodology, there are many instruments that can be already helpful. So I'm not arguing for a new methodology in that sense. The, the, this phasing in, which essentially means bringing some of the benefits reserved for member states to candidate countries before they join, be it sectoral cooperation in various fields, sit around the table, speaking rights, if not voting rights, access to cohesion funds, because arguably this process was meant to be a process that could be done in four, five, six years. And after so many years, two decades since the promise, we mentioned 11 years Montenegro, 10 years Serbia. So if you drag it out for so many years, obviously the incentives must be there earlier. And coming from North Macedonia, I cannot but mention that something will have to be done to limit or to prevent uh, the individual vetoes, especially those unrelated to the Copenhagen criteria, because they can torpedo the process and make it fully meaningless if individual member states can do it on whatever issue, whenever they like. 
and whether we move to qualified majority voting in the intermediary stages of the enlargement, whether we make blocking politically costly, which will help if there is a recognition that this is now important and that countries who come up with obstacles that do not make sense will not be appreciated, maybe this will be helpful. So whether institutional, whether political, but we need some uh, mechanism, a context where individual vetoes will be dealt with. If I can just add uh, one thing. Uh, what we saw with Ukraine and Moldova gaining candidate status, it's basically this, if you have a sense of a cohort, this triggers bargaining between among member states. So there are states which are uh, pushing very hard for Ukraine and Moldova, but then there are states who condition their support by saying, oh, but we would also like to progress Bosnia and Herzegovina, or we would basically, you get more of different states will look at different parts of the region and just having more states in this process might be an investment in resolving bilateral vetoes. Because if the process is very stuck and if it's just about one country making one step, it's basically a free ride for any member states which wants to block it. But if you yes. have a cohort and by blocking one country, maybe there would be another country which will block somebody which they would like to see in return. This will somehow create more balance, even if we don't get to a situation where we have qualified majority voting, which I agree uh, would be the best outcome, but we can't really influence it. But this is another reason why having a cohort would be better. All of us will have different issues, different problems. But if there are more countries' ability of any single member state to block is more limited. Remember Cyprus and how Cyprus in 2004 actually joined. Yes, the stakes are too big, essentially, mm -hmm. to block. It becomes, it becomes too big to fail. Moving. Yeah, yeah it, it becomes too big to fail. And one signal, if I may add, whether what we talk about has a potential to really happen will be the next enlargement commissioner. If member states compete and if we have a profile of authority and standing to be a real guardian of the treaties, then uh, I think the enlargement momentum will be really big. It will be another signal because if what we talk happens, this commissioner will have an opportunity to make history. So. Uh, I, I root for a really <laughs> a heavyweight a commissioner of authority, and it's going to be also interesting how many and which of, among the member states will actually be interested for this portfolio. But of course, we have to wait first for the European elections next year. Thank you so much both. Our time is up, unfortunately, but we heard a number of really interesting thoughts and ideas on how to make enlargement work for everybody, really, which is the subtitle of the brief that Milica and other BIEPAV colleagues um, have authored, and it's going to be published at the end uh, of the month, so keep your eyes peeled on the BIEPAV website. Uh, so uh, Milica, Nicola, thank you so much again for taking part in Circe Balkans. Thank you very much, Sena. It was great to be part of the podcast. Thank you. Bye. Seriously Balkans. 
the Beer Pod Talks. So when we were recording our conversation with Marina and Milica about the situation of Serbs in the north of Kosovo, um, we were interrupted by air raid sirens. And that really drove home to, to all of us how much uh, the kind of state of emergency, the state of crisis is omnipresent and affects people's lives. Um, but let me ask you, Tana, kind of what were your kind of key takeaways when you were listening to, to our conversation? Yeah, one thing that really struck me is that uh, in the political discourse and in the media narratives, we focus almost wholly on the role of the political leaderships. Whereas there is somehow no attempt to understand the concerns and the agency of the people on the ground, and especially of the Kosovo Serb community that is uh, really hit by the uh, violence in, in recent times. Um, it was really interesting to hear their perspectives. Um, what stuck with me is that it seems that they're really quite alienated by everybody. On the one hand, they don't feel represented by Srpska Lista and by the Serbian government somehow by extension. And they don't really um, even dispute that some of this violence might be, uh, might be orchestrated by Belgrade itself. But on the other hand, they also feel very let down by uh, the possible leadership and by by Kurti's government um, that has closed down the channels of communication. So somehow uh, the picture that emerges is that there are really le legitimate grievances among this uh, uh, this community that should be taken more seriously and that the agency of the local communities should stand front and center in the political calculations and in the way that we talk about this conflict. And uh, Florian, what did you think about the conversation with Milica Delevic and uh, Nikola Dimitrov about uh, the 20 years uh, since the signing of the Thessaloniki Declaration? Um, how have things changed and what do you think are the key issues to keep in mind in terms of EU enlargement now? Well, I mean, ironically, although the stories are very different, there is a connection of citizens being deeply frustrated with processes and feeling excluded. And I think this is something which... Nicola really communicated the sense of palpable frustration with the enlargement process 20 years afterwards and the lack of movement. Um, I mean, in, in a certain way, the, 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 the policy brief on which this conversation is based on and Milica's intervention is in a certain way also encouraging story, the story of how the Ukraine coming into the enlargement process as well as Moldova can really change the dynamics and can really infuse the political will. So, so in a certain way, there's there's hope, or if this energy is translated into kind of a, a process which is meaningful and which is directed, and I think its potential is there, and I think we see this in the conversation, but it's not there yet. So it needs to get there, and I, I think the biggest worry is that Ukraine gets again uncoupled from the enlargement process for the Western Balkans, and then we have like one process which is driven by strong political will uh, in the case of Ukraine, while the Western Balkans are stuck in this highly technical process. So one has the will, but not the technical kind of nitty gritties, and the other one has the technical nitty gritties, but not the political will to make it going. And in a certain way, we end up in a situation where both are going to suffer. So I think one needs to kind of re really think about this process as a joint process of bringing both Ukraine, Moldova, and you know potential other further countries in the Eastern from the Eastern Partnership into the EU together with the Western Balkans and using the synergies and also the kind of political dynamism which can that which that can bring. But you know again, this is I think possible. But I think as Milica was also pointing out, this still has to be 
put into reality and we have to really avoid the risk of uncoupling those two processes once again. Thanks, Florian. And thank you to all our listeners. Yes, thanks indeed. Um, do read up the policy brief on our website, beerpark.eu and tune in again to the next podcast, which will be published after the summer break in September. You've been listening to Seriously Balkans, the Beer Park Talks. This podcast is produced by the Balkans in Europe Policy Advisory Group, a joint project of the European Fund for the Balkans and the Center for Southeast European Studies of the University of Graz. Find out more about our research, analysis and advocacy at www.beapag.eu.